And the teenage brain is invincible. Like oh. they, they really feel that it won't be them and it won't happen to them. This generation of kids are better than we were when we were kids. They're more empathetic. They're more understanding. They care about the world. They just don't necessarily know how to put that in action at times and don't know where to, to go with that. Is there anyone out there? From Darkness to Life contains the real stories of courageous individuals who found their way out of the darkness caused by mental health challenges and substance abuse. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Rick, Ryan, and Damien are here for you. Please reach out when you're ready to ourcollectivejourney.ca or on Facebook at Our Collective Journey. So welcome to another episode of Our Collective Journey's podcast from darkness to life here at the Plugged In Media Network. Um, welcome. We've got a guest in the studio today, Shauna Barth, the vice principal from Crescent Heights High School here in Medicine Hat. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Finally. And we got Damo and we got Ryan and I'm Rick. How's it going? How's it really going? That's Poncho's line, right? How's yeah, it really absolutely. Going? Well, I can go first. I mean, for me, it's been, I'm, I'm glad to be back in Medicine Hat. I've had a pretty strenuous week um, emotionally, you know, just roller coaster ride with what I've been going through. And, uh, you know, when I come back here, this is where my supports are. This is home. This is where you guys are. Um, and it just feels like this is the place to be, right? This is where all my supports are. And this is where I can reach out and talk to people that actually get what we're going through and have no problem talking to anybody in my circle. So I'm doing awesome this morning. Yeah, I'm, uh, I was angry yesterday, you know, angry about a lot of the circumstances that have transpired here over the last eight months and, you know, banging your head against the wall, trying to get messages through to people. And, you know, I had to have a really good chat with Rick yesterday and, you know, this is kind of part of the, the journey, you know, it's not going to be easy, but it's uh, definitely needed and worth it. So, you know, I woke up this morning inspired and have a fuel and a fire inside of me that's just burning to, to be a catalyst to change for, for people in our community. Ms. Barth, how are you doing? I'm all right. I say a heady mixture of anxiety and excitement. It's got me going pretty good. Also very grateful to be a tiny part of what you guys are doing here. I think it's so powerful and so important for what we're going through in Medicine Hat and really community as a whole. So I can't thank you guys enough for what you're doing and for including me to be part of it. Yeah, we love that you're here. Actually, it's going to offer a lot of insight, I think, into you know childhood development and where, where we got to take this thing to on a earlier intervention level, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I'm really hoping to learn from you guys as much as you might get anything from me. Yeah. So I guess a little bit of history. Um, we we came in to contact with you. We, uh, well, I guess we got a call from one of your staff members, um, from the school and, uh, he was, he was going through some, some stuff in his personal life and, uh, reached out to us and we had a really good few meetings with him. And, uh, he kind of proposed that we need to get a hold of, we need to get in the same room as some of the administration team. And, and that led to, uh, a, the best breakfast sandwich I've had in a long time. I've debated stopping back in there just for sandwiches in the Anytime. morning. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I'm like, you know, do I need to report to the office to like, as a visitor, just to sneak in and grab a breakfast sandwich? But yeah, I don't think the mat, you wearing a mask isn't going to hide you enough to just go sneak a sandwich. 
We yeah. could do curbside delivery. <laughs> yeah, well, I keep trying to tell my kids, I'm like, just run me one out, just run me one out. But um, yeah, so that kind of led to a conversation with you and your administration team, which has spawned on more conversations, and it's kind of evolved from there. And we're we're uh, trying to engage a little more with SD76 on administrative level and and see what we can do to support you guys and and how we can be of service to you and in the challenges that. God knows you face. I only got three kids in my house and <laughs> it can be a lot some days. Well, it's never a boring day, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, so uh, I guess we can just get right into it. Who wants to fire off first? Well, I, I'll just talk uh, shortly about that first conversation that we had with you, Shauna, at the, at the high school and how when we left that, unfortunately, Dama wasn't available that day, but when Rick and I left that building that day, we were so stoked and fired up about where this could go because we recognize in our stories, you know, what it was like growing up and struggling as a young man. And uh, to be able to start to have that conversation with people of influence for, for young people and just shed some light on what the actual, you know, lived experience piece for us and the struggles we faced and, and based on our experiences as young people, just to be able to have that platform to start to talk to, you know, people of influence with young people and stuff like that is just, we think that's an amazing opportunity. Yeah, I think really needed right now too. Like, just like parenting, there's no manual for how to raise teenagers. And <laughs> it seems to be if continually... There is, I did not get a copy of it. <laughs> and continually evolving. Like, things just keep happening in our society and community that just influence their social-emotional growth. And mm -hmm. we're constantly trying to adapt and, and figure them out. Because believe it or not, teenagers aren't that forthcoming in how they're feeling and what they need. And so for us, it gets harder to figure out where do we step in and how do we help. I've spent uh, a lot of years as a school counselor as well as a mental health capacity building um, project leader. And that's been a question we ask ourselves constantly. What do we need to be doing to be proactive? And so hopefully we don't need to be reacting as much mm -hmm. when they're young adults or later into their lives. And I'm really looking forward to working with you guys on what are some things we can be doing in school better? What are we doing well that we need to get that information out there so that people are accessing what's happening? And just really love to hear from you guys too what worked for you when you you were in school and what you wish maybe somebody would have said or did mm -hmm. or an intervention that might have made a, a positive difference or could have made a positive difference for sure yeah no that's it's so powerful I think having this opportunity to talk to you and just and get these messages out there because you know we all know that people at that young age are so impressionable and so just they just are learning from their environment and, and the faster and the easier we can start changing those conversations and making things more normalized, you know, it's not going to happen overnight, but it's got to start somewhere. And Damo, give us some of your magical vocals, man. Well, yeah, I, I think of some of the volunteer experiences that I had when, um, I was still living in Brooks. I, I did a lot of volunteering for junior achievers, um, where different professionals, <laughs> I guess I use that term loosely for myself <laughs> would come into a school to, you know, teach life skills and different skills. And, you know, the feedback that I would get from teachers and, and especially from the students is you're not like my teachers. You don't look like them. You look like us. Um, you know, I dress like I'm a teenager some days and the reception that we got seemed to be a little different. Right. And utilizing that in my life, I have, you know, a lot of nieces and nephews who, seem to be able to talk to me maybe more so than they talk to their parents. Right. So, um, in life, I, I really believe it's 
meeting people where they're at and, and communicating on their level until that relationship is built, that they trust, that you care for them um, and are there to, to hear what they're about or what they're going through and not so much, you know, tell me that it's okay to, to be vulnerable and open and honest, but through me showing that that's the way, not just a man, but a human being is supposed to live. Right. I really think with what we're doing with our collective journey is it's all about empowering leaders to empower themselves, to empower other leaders. So, you know, we we're looking at, you know, a teenager demographic, but who are their closest support systems? It's their other peers, you know, number one, but then we have to build these support systems in their homes so that the parents are becoming better leaders. The, the teachers that they're interacting with on a daily basis, you know, are empowered and supported by other leaders so that the kids can, you know, self lead themselves in a direction of, uh, of change where this is no longer um, something that we, we talk about. It's something that's happening on a daily basis, right? That really resonated with me when I spoke with you guys on the, the action part of things, because very often it's tempting. Well, let's bring another presentation. Let's get more posters up. And we've been doing that for 20, 30 years, probably longer. Mm -hmm. And is that having the impact that we need? Like, does a kid walk by a poster and go, oh, man, you know, I was going to go smoke a joint at lunch, but I guess I won't now. Like, most likely that's not what's making the difference. Yeah, just say no, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> this is your, your brain on an egg or whatever that was. Yeah, and, I, and I don't know the the exact numbers, but maybe, you know, some people smarter than me do, but we, we as human beings only learn a certain percentage by reading. We only learn a certain percentage by hearing somebody tell us something. But where I learn is from experiencing something, you know? So my experience, experiential based learning that I've done is what resonates, you know? I can read a book about going to Italy, but I don't know anything about Italy, right? I got to <laughs> go to Italy to, to experience that. So I don't remember any presentations from high school, junior high, elementary school, nothing. Um, what I do remember is, you know, the experiences that were created through certain situations. So my big picture goal is to create programming where we come in and we, we have teachers and parents do some experiential based learning. And then the students do experiential based learning. And then their sphere of influence, which is the teachers and their parents and them can talk about what they've experienced and move forward and maybe change the narrative on, on how we interact with one another and how, you know, we can open up and be honest and open and vulnerable and not be ostracized or thought lesser than. Right. So we, I got big picture goals. I think these guys do too. And, and I guess with something I'm just coming up with is, you know, there's people out there that also have, these same thoughts and these same things. But sometimes we as adults, we don't want to let people know what our dreams or our goals are because they're too daunting. Well, you've got a room full of people here that will figure that out with you. So if you've got ideas, let us know so that we well, can... I think we need to be working together for sure. Like schools cannot do it on their own. It's just every five years, it seems there's more expected from schools because we're kind of the catch-all for society's concerns. So teachers feel that weight on their shoulders. They recognize that kids are struggling, but they can't teach the math and like cover all the things that need to be covered as well as be responsible in their minds for the social emotional growth on their own. For sure. I think gone are the days of you're just a math teacher. Yeah. 
and that's all you do from nine to three or whatever. You're definitely right? a teacher of kids, not a, a subject. And some people went to university 20, 25 years ago and they went to be a math teacher and that's what their skill set is. So the expectation now and, uh, and not just from society, but ourselves, we want to help kids. But there's very little education when you go through university. My daughter's in uh, pre-ed right now and she asked me, well, how do you teach social emotional? Like, And she's almost done. So still in universities, they are not covering that portion of of education like teachers need some help and and how to do that's not a natural skill for a lot of people well, some people are just like the coaches you probably had that were guys you guys were mentioning that were positive they probably were somewhat natural at it and had some positive experiences and built their their skills in those areas but there's a lot of people that that is not a, a natural thing and shouldn't always have to be it needs to be a community effort to support these young people well i remember when we first like when the dialogue first started with the SD 76 and, and the guys and us from OCJ, like we were still ridiculously in our infancy as an organization. Not that we're not still kind of. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> You're preteens yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, we just learned to walk. <laughs> we're still just fumbling forward. But um, I, I remember like when, when the, when the opportunity came up, I remember talking amongst ourselves, right? Like what are not necessarily intimidated, but like what's our agenda to go in there and talk to you guys. Right. And I remember the idea getting kicked around of like, maybe we can go in there and we can talk to students. And, and I was maybe more so than you guys. I don't want to speak for you, but I was really hesitant to do that because I was one, I've got kids in that school and I'm like, man, you know, me getting up, standing there telling my story is probably not going to work well for them. Secondly, I, I, like Damien said, I don't remember, you know, I'm, you know, we had dare mad, like all, all of those things, right. That didn't do it. It, it, it never, you know, for a day or two, it kind of kicked around in the brain, but it's gone. Right. So you can imagine the responsibility teachers feel then when a student comes up and says, Hey, I'm struggling with this. And you got 27 other kids sitting in the class waiting for that lesson to start. It's, it's daunting for them. And then I don't know if you guys watched that series, 13 reasons why, yeah. like ones like that, they scare you too because you're so afraid you're going to say the wrong thing. So at times it can paralyze you. Like I, I don't want to be saying the wrong thing, so I'm just not going to say anything at all. Yeah. Well, I think that's what we recognize too, right? Is is uh, uh, the outcome of that conversation about whether or not we want to speak directly to students? And we kind of went, you know, I think we're better off talking to teachers and administrators because mm-hmm. we're going to come in and we're going to leave. You guys are the ones that are there. You, like you're the front line of that, right? You're you're literally the front line of our future. And the parents. Yeah. Yeah. I think what you're saying, Damien, about the parent involvement is is amazing. Like a real shift I've seen in the last ten years is is connection. And I think that's probably always been a concern for kids that go looking for love in all the wrong places is has to do with looking for those connections. But cell phones and social media have have impacted that significantly. And we tend to focus always on the kids use of those objects. I'm going to put some of this on the parents. Like you drive by a park and they're pushing the kid on the swing, looking on the, the phone, or you look up in the stands at a volleyball game and 75% 75% of the parents are looking at their phone there. They're watching their student. But so kids, they see that. And I think those those impacts, I think, are stronger than the kids actually looking at the phone because they're like pushing mom. Come on, mom, watch me, watch me. Yeah, 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 just a second. And I think we need a societal shift on our connection with our youth because well, I, they will find that connection. And it's not always where we want it to be. I've coached football for Oh, shit. I'm going to date myself. Probably 18, well, almost 20 years now, like youth football, right? From all the way from Adam to high school. And and I've recognized the shift at practice 
in, you know, 20 years ago, we'd have, you got 20 kids in the field, you got 20 parents on the sideline. Now you've got maybe two, one of them's engaged and the other one's on their phone. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, it's a really strong visual for me of that exact shift that you're talking about is everybody's priorities are shifting. And it's like, it's, you know, maybe you talk about a daunting task, right? Like now we're talking about societal shifts, but it's got to start somewhere. Well, it does. And it starts with me, yeah. you know, I can't ask anybody to do something that I'm not willing to do. And it, it took me a, a, to go to some pretty dark places to, uh, to figure out that that's not how human beings are supposed to live, right? That selfish, self-centered, you know, it's all about me mentality had to shift. And I'm very grateful that, you know, I was introduced to, you know, some concepts that like we were talking about before we started taping here, the, these universal truths that have been out there for all human beings to, to utilize, but we don't. And that's that connection piece, which is how do I think of myself less often and think of other people more often, right? How do I help my fellow man with no strings attached? And like you said, like the, the kids are watching, their people are watching. So which way am I leading myself with full awareness that this next word I say, this next action I take could be a ripple effect in a positive or a negative direction in somebody's life. And I say this quite often though, that saying ignorance is bliss before I became aware was something I didn't really think about. But now that I'm aware, it sucks sometimes because the responsibility with that isn't always easy, but it's something that I have to do, right? Um, Because I've been gifted an amazing life. Um, Three little boys, a wife, I have a dog, you know, those things weren't even in my sphere of possibility at some points in my life. And uh, I'm very grateful to uh, be able to be that positive change for other adults and kids, right? And you really do see it. Like I've coached volleyball for a long time and I don't want to paint volleyball parents all in the same because we have amazing parents there, but you really see it in their kids. Like those parents that are paying attention, those are the kids that at the end of the practice are saying, thanks coach. They're the ones that are picking up the balls and helping put things away. Like there's just that ripple effect that tends to happen when the students are engaged with their parents. It's often the same students that are easily engaged with their teachers It's the ones that are lacking that connection at home that often struggle at school to make connections with adults because they haven't necessarily developed that skill. And it can be a skill and even just a level of confidence because if they've been let down by adults in their life in the past, you're not going to be vulnerable easily with your teachers. And some teachers rise to the challenge. Like those are my favorite kind of kids to work with. Other teachers, not so much. And they, you know, they're humans too. You can only be told to take off so many times before you're going to say that kid okay you're on your own and that's a real balance too like we talked a bit before we started of you know the the discipline and tough love part of things with teenagers versus the okay why are you acting that way like you also have to check your own emotions as adults of most times there's a reason behind behavior and what is causing the student to behave that way might just be a a brain fart of a, a teenage brain and that happens but when you see a pattern of concern Instead of the taking it so personal as a sign of disrespect, how do we help parents and kids understand how to communicate with each other? Like, because they don't even know what they need. It's not like they're sitting back, rubbing their hands together, going, okay, I'm going to be a real jerk right now and see if I can get my mom mad. Like, they don't even know why they're trying to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's funny when we talk about childhood experiences and stuff like that. Like, I talk to my girlfriend right now, and she talks about being brought up in her home with her parents who are loving and connected and kind and 
all the things, you know, that society, we, we would like to think that's where everybody should grow up. But I always, you know, discuss with her how jealous I am of that upbringing for her because that's so foreign to me. I mean, my parents love me and they did the best they could with what they had at the time and the way they were brought up and whatnot and all that kind of ripple effect. But man, it's just so foreign the way she was brought up. And, and, you know, that's my goal in life as well is just to start treating people the way, because I see the product of that, that environment, what it looks like today for her. And that's amazing. So that's another goal for me is just to, you know, start realizing who I'm impacting by the actions and the, and my behavior and my my tone of voice, just everything like that, right? Because people are watching. And I had that experience with my son over the weekend where, you know, he brought up some stuff from the from our past when I was a young father. And, uh, you know, he's been holding on to stuff like that for the last 15 years. And he brought that up with me, you know, dad, this really embarrassed me when you did this 12 years ago. And, and for me, I don't even remember doing it, but, you know, and just to have that conversation with him now as a 21 year old and discuss, you know, the the accountability piece and I, and, and making resent or making uh, um, apologies and, and talking to him about that has just been so powerful. But what would that have been like if I knew that and was aware of it 12 or 15 years ago and, and never put myself in that position to embarrass him and, and set him on his path? It's just been a, a wild ride since I've been uh, present in my life, I guess. We almost have to be a detective because you don't always know, like my kids are young adults and they mentioned the odd story. I'm like, I don't remember that. And like, how did you just pick on that one thing? And we don't know necessarily what they're listening to at the time or how they're interpreting it. And it's not an easy job to be raising teenagers, but it's definitely not an easy job being a teenager right now. I think uh, the pandemic might in the end be a bit of blessing in some ways. Like, I think we've really taken some time to reevaluate uh, the family time that we're seeing. We expected that kids come back to school and be maybe a little more out of control because of the lack of structure for the last six months, but it's actually been kind of the other way around. They're they're happy for the routine. They want to be there. They're respectful. Like our levels of discipline has been has dropped significantly, but we also worry what's going on under the surface that we're not seeing. Like they're not accessing our counseling suite in the same way. Is that because they're doing better? It's a little hard to believe with all the challenges in the society. We're not sure. Like, and when we talked that one day, the amount of males that, access or counseling suite is about one for every 10. And I did a little bit of asking around about my other, my other school counselors and people who work with youth. And that's pretty consistent one or two. And most of those aren't ones walking in saying, I'm having a real crappy day. It's my mom said I had to come or my teacher said I had to come before I can come back into class. So like, did you guys access that sort of support when you were at school or would you have? I think, yeah. So I, I had a really close friend of mine uh, die in grade six and I, I had to access different supports. I don't really remember like the, the results of those supports. Um, but my parents had identified that I was thinking about self-harm, you know, after his death, because I, I was in grade six, I didn't know how to process. Um, I had some good experiences, I guess, with, with teachers and have good relationships with those teachers still, but I also had some, uh, you know, some terrible experiences where, you know, wasn't supported, was ostracized by authority figures, um, was made to feel lesser than just because of a haircut that I had received. Right. Um, I, uh, like I was mentioning before, like I was still a star athlete, still a straight A student, still had all these on the outside, everything was, was amazing, but on the inside, something wasn't ever right with me, you know? And, um, I don't think I can look back on it now. Like I came from a loving home. There was some, you know, some violence and some stuff, but 
there was love there, right? So there was something internal within me that just wasn't right from the get-go. Um, was I able to talk about that with anybody? No. You know, um, I was bullied quite extensively in school. I had to fight a lot to, you know, to, to be accepted. And I just never, I never let people in. I didn't want to show weakness. That just wasn't something you did. You, you, you know, you fought and you scrapped and you, you made sure that nobody messed with you because then they had power over you. Right. Um, that was my example. And kind of like when Ryan was talking about his girlfriend, like I talked to my wife all the time who came from a completely different upbringing and is a beautiful, powerful woman who deals with the same self-worth issues that I deal with. Right. So it, it has really made me like understand like this isn't about my external circumstances. In some cases, this is just about an internal condition that maybe a, more human beings are going through than, than we realize, right? Well, I know um, that's always the biggest fear as an educator, what you're missing. Because some students are very, you can see it on their face for masks, which is like very worrisome for us now because I'm, I'm pretty good at that. I watch kids in the hall. I can pick up on changes of, of body language, face, and we're, you can't see that right now. But pre-masks, um, it's a worry that something's going on that you're not seeing, especially in the successful appearing students, because they're not the ones that are flagged and being brought up in our meetings because we're not, their marks aren't dropping, their attendance isn't dropping. And it's, it's a challenge to know how to, to read that. And maybe we need to be starting a lot earlier, like you mentioned with your young sons, like talking about it early, because by the time you're a teenager, it does not come easy to reach out for help. And like you said, you've already got your defense mechanism set up by that point. But maybe we need to be doing some real work in, with elementary kids. Yeah, I think so. I heard a stat or I read a stat one time where the Stanford did a study back in the early 80s and they talk about, you know, what percentage of us is developed at certain age frames, you know, 25 or sorry, 50% of who I am as a human being today was developed between the ages of zero to four, you know, so my primary influences are my parents, right? So half of who I am sitting here in this chair was instilled and grained in me in those first four years, you know, how did my parents talk to me? How did they interact? Did they build me up? Did they tear me down? Did they whatever? And then 25% from the ages of four till 16. So who's your influences there? It's just your peers, your teachers, you know, that's your primary influence. So that leaves 25% from 16 to the rest of your life. So when, you know, 75% of who I am was already developed before I even really had a choice in what I was, or what I thought was a choice on how I was going to show up in the world. Right. So I really think it starts with the parents. It starts when, you know, I feel very grateful. I had kids a little bit later than most. I'm 43 and I got a four month old at home, but I've really focused on how I communicate with my sons. You know, how do I instill and show? I brought my son to this podcast. He's sitting in the other room. Don't tell me what you're doing. Show me what you're doing. You know, show me the service pieces, show me the empathy and the caring. You know, he asked me, are we going to a meeting, dad? Are we going to help people? Yes, son. That's what we're doing. You know, so we're, we need to have focus for all different groups, but it needs to start early, early, in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. And when you're talking about zero to four and, you know, how, in, in, uh, how influential those years are, and then uh, four to 16, I always go back to think about I think, uh, Shauna, we talked about this one other time, the ACEs, um, the adverse childhood effects, right? So 18 and under, there's a, uh, a survey or, you know, a diagnostic tool that if you've experienced X, Y, and Z, 10 different uh, topics that are either personal to yourself or through environment onto you, um, if you're scoring four or more than that, it's it's like completely um, relevant to the impacts of your, you know, 
environment later on in life, whether it's, you know, if you've suffered or just witnessed domestic violence in your house or people beating you down verbally or, you know, insulting you, stuff like that, right? As opposed to, you know, live coming from that normal childhood, uh, air quotes around normal, but, you know, those, the, that ACEs survey can really roadmap where somebody's going to end up in life. And it's, it's almost, you know, scientifically proven that this is not just mental health, but, you know, physical health diseases and stuff are based on that survey as well. And it's, it's astronomical how accurate it is. So that 18 and under impact is huge on people's lives these days. Well, it has I'm been. just fascinated with the whole idea of resiliency. Like resiliency yeah. and grit are a big, uh, big buzzwords in education <laughs> and just youth as a whole. But to watch some kids rise from that and be so successful, I always would talk with some of my kids who are really having some crappy home situations. And we talk about like when you watch a biography on TV, never are these successful people going, oh, I had a really easy childhood. My parents told me they'd love me every day. Everything was wonderful. Almost every real successful person has quite a story behind them, but they've learned to rise above. So I've continually asked them, like, how do we help kids with that? Like, no matter what your circumstance, because we don't want them to think, okay, you had a bad first 10 years of your life. Hey, that's, that's your roadmap. Like, how do we help them learn from that, rise above? And you guys are doing exactly that and, and with your, your own kids. How do we help other people with that to not fall into, I don't want to, you know, a victim kind of thing that this is, this is what I have to be like. Well, and I sit here a little bit removed from Damien, right? Because you're, like you said, man, you're lucky that you're in the headspace you are now and just getting into the kids, right? I've, I've got to look back on all, like I was full blown the worst person I could be. <laughs> around my children's most influential ages, right? So now I've got this weight of what damage have I done? And, and like, that's heavy, right? To process that. And I think that's where the resilience piece comes in. And if nothing else, that's, you know, what's done is done. I can't undo it. But the critical piece to me is very, very vocally now show them that it doesn't matter how far you've slipped. There's you can always come back from it, right? Like there's no, there's no failure too big. There's no mistake too heavy. You, we've always got the opportunity to try and turn that wrong into a right. And it, and the big thing for me that I try to still instill is it, it starts with honesty, like in, in honesty with yourself and honesty with the people asking the questions. Cause I mean, teachers, parents, we, we can all ask as many questions as we want for getting bullshit answers. You know, just uh, I'm fine, right? Like we we talk about it all the time, right? How are you? I'm good, and and it's knowing it it is a bit of a balance too, especially with the teenagers, even more so than the young ones. How hard do I push that, right? Because you know I've had plenty of interactions with my oldest boy that I know he's not good, and then I I push, and then I push too hard, and I don't mean physically, right? Like um, yeah. thank God I've never gone there, but um, it's and then he just pushes back, right? And then it will go, and then we end up fighting and we don't talk at all for two weeks then, right? And that's how we coexist. So it's, it's, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where I'm even going with this, right? I think you're lucky. I think you're really lucky to be in a position that you, you can foster that already. And I do, I feel extremely grateful. But then I think of that story you told me about when your father-in-law passed and then, your son wasn't dealing with it that well. And then all of a sudden at, what was it? 11 o'clock at night. He's like, Hey, let's change the tires. So instead of being on your cell phone or saying it's 11 o'clock or, you know, let's do it tomorrow. 
you in your headspace and your awareness of where he's at and what kind of human being he is, we're able to pivot and say, this is how we're going to connect, you know? And I think that's the piece when a teenager or a person opens up or not even opens up, but just does something that's out of character, but asks that question, that's when I put my cell phone down or that's when I make it a priority that, okay, this is the moment, you know, this, this is their way of reaching out. And then I, I do whatever it takes. I listen, you know, I listen and then I do whatever I can to help them. Right. Uh, maybe that's a big piece, right. Is like, we talk about the distractions of life and society and technology. And I know for, for my oldest anyway, like when he does ask that engaging question, he isn't, he doesn't ask it very loud. Right. And if I'm not listening, I'm going to miss it. Yeah, so I think like that's there's value in that, right? Is we all get distracted, life's heavy, you know, shit's coming at us, but um make a point of listening, right? Cuz I know, yeah. I know when my daughter's got the driver's license. It's easily license, missed. Got the driver's license, I was sad cuz so many conversations happened in the car when you're facing forward and you're not it's not uncomfortable like, "Hey, tell me how you're feeling while you're looking right at them," but they would just start talking about things and it was just such a natural. And I think girls definitely are more comfortable sharing their feelings with boys. It does seem to be more around the action element. Like I think that's why when you ask young men that have been resilient and have done well, describe the one person in your background that made a difference. It's almost always a coach or a boss or somebody where there was a physical component to the relationship where they were able to be doing something, building something, creating something. Not too often do they say school counselor called me in and sat me down. We had a really good talk. Some of them, like some of them just need and you need to be there at the right time when the girlfriend broke up with them or their dog died or whatever. And, and you can make the difference in that moment. But a lot of them don't remember that long term. It's the the action and relationships that seem to make a difference with the males more. You guys know that better than I do, well, obviously, but just it, talking with kids. Yeah. And from my experience, it's that adage, don't tell me you care, show me, you know, and it's, it's through, you know, consistent showing me that that's when I'm able to open up and be honest and be open and be vulnerable and um, be there for, for another human being. Right. Yeah, for sure. And it, it's, it reminds me, like we talk about listening to the kids, right? Listening to our children, listening to anybody who's younger struggling. And it reminds me of, uh, you know, working with anyone in addiction, right? In order to understand where they're at, we have to be able to empathize with them and walk in their shoes right there and then and kind of understand what they're going through. So when I deal with my kids, and I'm sure you guys might be the same way, you know, yeah. Okay. I was 18 at one time. Yeah, I get it. And I'm not going to tell, you know, I see so many parents tell their, well, I was there too once and this is what I did. Right. But when I was 18, the world was a lot different than when my son is 18. So in order to understand what he's going through that day, I have to actually just sit down, put all the other crap aside and focus on actively listening to him to understand what he's going through because what he's going through at 18 today is nothing like what I went through at 18. So to understand that concept too is, man, that's a struggle. And you really have to be present and, and willing to do that work to understand where they're at and what their situations are. And that's been, you know, I never get it perfect and I never will, but I'm willing to try it every time. And, and, uh, it's a struggle, but I mean, in order to, in order to make progress, we have to keep trying for sure or else, you know, nothing is ever going to change. Well, as helpers, we always want to be the fixers a lot of times too. And you're, 
I find there's times I'm listening in my head, okay, what can I say to help? What can I do to help? I'm like, nope, just listen. And a lot of times they just leave the office. I've really not said a whole lot. They've talked it through. They found a solution, but it's hard. We want to, they're hurting. So we want to do something to make them feel better. Well, and I think also, you know, you said as helpers, we're fixers. I think as men, we're fixers too. We're brought up. I was going to say that, but I didn't want to be sexist. (laughs) (laughs) No, my wife tells me all the time. Yeah, right. We're brought up to fix problems, fix vehicles, fix whatever the problem is. We, We are supposed to fix. And whether that's with our children, in our relationships, just in our relationship with ourselves, a lot of times just sitting there and not going with that first instinct to fix. Lots of people just want to be listened to. That's what I find. Um, they just want to be listened to and they want to be understood. It doesn't mean that, you know, when my spouse tells me her issues she's going through that day, even after all the work I've done on myself, my brain goes to, okay, how can I fix this? And now before it comes out of my mouth, I'm able to catch it a lot of times and just sit back and wait and listen instead of jumping right in with the solution. Because that a lot of times people aren't looking for the solution right off the bat. They're looking for that trusted person to, to talk to and, and just to be understood. So that's a big piece too, I think. For And that builds their skills. Like yeah. Yeah, us fixing it's not going to help them the next problem that they have. For sure. And I remember a counselor telling me when I first got into recovery, if there was an action that I could do today to fix you and fix your problem, I wouldn't do it because you're going to miss that whole journey and those whole, you know, all those learning experiences that are ahead of you that are going to turn you into the person that you want to be someday. And uh, in that moment, I thought, <laughs> man, why are you being such a jerk? <laughs> fix me now. <laughs> I was thinking about this on the drive over here today. Like I remember thinking or feeling, or maybe even being told, you know, that like junior high and high school are the best years of your life, you know? And, and I, I think I bought into it for a long time and, you know, you get out of there and your friend circle is pretty tight after high school for a short period. And then people start to disperse and, you know, people start having their ups and their downs in life. And I'm very grateful that that was a great experience my life is so good now that I wouldn't even have been able to imagine that back then, right? When I was getting bullied or, you know, the girls were picking on me because they had big ears or, you know, whatever was going on. Like, this is the, this is as good as it gets. Like, <laughs> kind of blows my mind that it gets so much better, you know, and it, life is going to happen and it's going to be perfect. And, you know, we, again, I was thinking this morning, like, I hear so many times life is so hard. We got to, you know, you got to prepare them to be hard and for fa- and failure and whatever's coming. It's like, no, life is cool. Life is amazing. Um, there's so many amazing people on this planet that are just doing more and being more and aren't dragging me down or, you know, not going to put up with me dragging them down or myself down. Like that's, that's what human beings are on this planet for is to help each other be successful. And that's what I want to instill in kids. That's what I want to instill in teachers and parents and other people. Like it just gets better. Challenge a little on that. I guess if, if you can actually instill it or can you pr- create the environment that they instill it in themselves? Cause I, I think your environment is why you you're able to do what it, you're doing. Now. It is. I think, I think it's through a shared experience, you know? So I think when we're, we're talking like, how do we get a message through? It's not through telling it's through showing. Right. And, and that's, I guess the, what we're talking about is how do we, how do we get to that point where it's, it's showing or just people are showing each other when we're not even around, when they're not listening to a podcast and they're building each other up or when they go to co-op and they see the guy at the meat counter and they ask him how he's doing. And he says, I'm not having a good day. We give him a genuine response and time where we listen to him. Right. And, 
what if all the kids that you deal with do that on a daily basis throughout their lives? How are they going to change the world in such an amazing way, right? I do wonder, though, even the other end of it of, like you said, for some kids, the school age is the best years of their lives, partially because they've been very insulated. Like in some some families, the kids can do no wrong ever. They don't learn to stumble and get themselves back up. Like what role that plays in some of the mental health when they're older? Because, you know, I've been at this long enough now to watch some kids that should have probably been very successful not leave home. They've stayed in the basement, stayed at home because they're just... They have a hard time when they do reach adversity. Like, how do we find that balance? You know, not, it's a hard life. You got to learn to live hard, but you also have to, you didn't pass that class. Now you've got to redo that class. And that's your. And I'm not paying for summer school. If <laughs> exactly. <you're> <laughs> <laughs> and that's some, based on some choices you made. It's not everybody else's fault because that's a bit of an epidemic right now too, mm-hmm. which is really hard for kids to, and to be fair, those are the hardest kids to work with. Most teachers will bend over backwards from the kid who's coming from a bit of a tricky situation, but the kid who accepts no responsibility yeah. and the parent is blaming everybody else, they're a very challenging group to work with. And in the same, they're really being held back in the same way those other kids are. But it's a balance to make sure you're not, yeah, you fell, get yourself back up. Mm-hmm. But also, you'll be okay. You know, you fell. I love you. Get back up. Things are going to be okay. Yeah, I think I've seen that, you know, going back to my coaching, that's my biggest interaction with kids that aren't mine right um over the course of you know 15 20 years the sense of entitlement that i've seen shift it's and it's it's difficult like i I fully understand what you mean when you've got a kid that takes no no accountability and no responsibility and just you know the i've had kids come to me and be like i want to be the quarterback and you're like okay well here's a playbook and they come out to the next practice and they're like, Hey, I'm ready to be the quarterback. And you're like, did you study? No. Well, but you know, I want to be the quarterback. And it's like, well, dude, you too bad. Right. Like that's not how life works. Right. You're going to have to put some effort in. And, and then I get chewed out by the parent. Why isn't my kid getting his, his mm-hmm. chance. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, Holy cow. Um, I can't imagine the pressure teachers are under to, like I know what, you know, volunteering for three months a year to do that role for two hours a night is to make, you know, 2000 hours a year doing that. I don't know. That's a lot of pressure and I commend you for well, just it. the effect it has on those, the self-confidence of them because they don't feel they're capable of being able to solve their own problems. And so then that carries over to young adulthood too. And they just mm-hmm. become, I think, much more easily swayed by their peers will come do this because, well, I've never made a decision for myself. So they get themselves into some situations and people look at it like, how did that happen to that kid? They come from such a good home. Their mom was at everything. She, well, but did the kid have a chance to, to grow up and be independent? So Maybe that's it. Maybe that's that leadership piece that we talk about, right? We've, we've perpetuated a generation of followers and not leaders and we need to start instilling some leadership. Well, that leadership for me became becoming responsible and stop pointing fingers and being yeah. that victim, right? Like personal I, accountability. It, it was, and it was, you know, accepting that failure is an option and it's okay. You know, if I fall down, what's not okay is to stay down. Mm-hmm. I have to get up and, you know, 
move forward and keep moving forward. I don't learn through all of the successes. I think about my oil and gas career. I remember the very terrible things that have happened <laughs> and all the disasters out there. And it's like, those are the days I remember. That's what I learned from them. Like I'm never don't doing do that, that again. again. Right. Yeah, Should have so, never done that. Attempt to, I think of Hunter or my son that's sitting outside of here, like getting up on the stairs and he's 10 stairs up. Can I jump? And I'm like, you could, you're responsible for the outcome. Yeah. I think I'll come down. Right. So it's, <laughs> it's how do I, as a parent, you know, I'm not rescuing him. I'm not going to let him get hurt, but I'm going to let him fall. You know, I'm going to let him bang his knee. And then he's like, yeah, I'm not doing that again. All right. You learn. Right. I also got to remember he's four. And tomorrow he won't remember that, <laughs> that, but that's just how his brain is developing. They're still developing. They're going to have emotions. Sometimes logical brain isn't going to kick in. Mm-hmm. I have to meet them where they're at. I'm 43. You know, I can't let my emotions override the situation and cause him to not be able to make a responsible decision for him. Right. You make such a good point there. We've got a lot of hurting parents raising kids mm-hmm. and because they haven't had maybe the education on how to get past some of this. So they need some help so that they can model properly for their kids. They, I, all parents are doing the best they know how to do. For like sure. I definitely don't want to be parent shaming by any means. A lot of times it may be overcorrecting something that happened to them when they were younger. I think the more conversations we're having, the more people are able to self-reflect and go, oh, yeah, I, I've been doing that. But it, it's hard because you, you don't want to be shaming people, but you also want to try to educate them too on, like, take a look at it. Like, you are working out of love. We know you're doing the best you can, but maybe take a look at the effect this might be having on your child. And it might be different for Sally than it is for Billy. Like, if you have multiple kids, you find that out pretty fast. So, again, in a classroom with 28 kids, you're like, okay, well, this works for Ryan, but sure didn't work for Rick. And, well, mm-hmm. Damien's flying with it, but... Like it's a lot of work and that part we talked about too, getting kids to be able to communicate and talk about what they need is a huge endeavor, but would be well worth it. <laughs> and it starts with adults, you know, like mm-hmm. when somebody, like Rick said, when somebody says, how are you doing? Instead of that yep. social courtesy that we throw out there, fine or good. It's if you're okay, awesome. Tell people, but if you're not open up, your kids are watching, yeah. you know, people are watching, give them permission to make do the it same. till you make it. Even if you have for to. sure. And, and, just piggybacking on that. If you're asking that question, your kids are also watching what you do with that response. So if you're just sloughing it off as a, another form of greeting somebody and when they say, no, I'm not doing that great today. Okay, well, have a good day. Good luck. Yeah, right. Your kids are going to witness that and that's how they're going to respond to situations like that too. That's <laughs> firsthand. I've seen it numerous times, right? And when I stop and I talk to people and I know you've shared this before too, Damo, is our kids afterwards are like, man, that was pretty cool that you sat and talked to that person type thing, right? And that's just where we have to be if we want to see this change start to happen, I think. I know for me, my biggest, like I've done a lot of work on myself over the last five years. And, and I don't mean to say that like for a pat on the back. It's just, I'm, I'm not the guy I was five years ago. Thank goodness. <laughs> no, I would, probably wouldn't be sitting here, buddy. Um, <laughs> but primarily, primarily today, my, that negative self-talk all circles around my kids. Mm-hmm. And it's... Um, you know, I, I get a lot of, especially with what we're doing with OCJ, right? With with this organization and talking to the school board and stuff. And I'm like, you're such a fraud because you're still failing at home with your own kids, right? And it's like, and I'll process that and I'll sit in that for a while. And I'll, and then that, like, you know, the things that you put your kids through, that voice starts talking to me. Mm-hmm. And then I got to kind of tuck it down and, and I got to confront it, right? And I think the, big difference the biggest thing that i've done i think 
is be able to go downstairs to my kid and admit that I was wrong. Yeah. And apologize. Right. Cause my, my natural state, I like, I'm still an asshole. Like it's, <laughs> it's still my natural place to like, that's my comfort blanket. Right. Like I'm, I'm in awe of you constantly, Damien. Like, cause you, you, and you know, I'm sure that it's, I, well, I've no, I shouldn't say that. I've seen your angry side too. Right. It's still, it's still alive <laughs> yeah, and kicking. Yeah. Right. But like, I, I feel like I'm still in that place more than I'm not. But the difference is today I can try to make an immediate amends for whatever wrong yeah. I, I had. Right. And, uh, and I think that's where, you know, maybe we, and maybe I'm just talking to me right now. Maybe that's where I got to give myself a little bit more of a break and be like, Hey, you're doing the best you can. And the mm-hmm. fact that it's getting to me means I care at least. Right. And, and it's progress, not perfection. For sure. Like the program, te- our program <laughs> teaches us, but it's that, it's that awareness now that that's not normal. Right. And that I th- we talked about this earlier about, you know, Rick Ryan and I are in 12 step, but the 12 steps of a 12 step program aren't unique to a 12 step program. They're actually how human beings, all human beings are supposed to live their life. And they just put in, put in a format that guys like us and women <laughs> like us can understand. And it all, it, it is about being responsible and helping others and being selfless, which is so, was so foreign to me. And to be able to be in that space to not think less of myself, but to think of myself less often is pretty cool. Um, especially when my kids see that. And then to hear Rick talk about the awareness that he now has and to be around other people that are empowering each other to be better, man, you know, we're on the world is hungry for this change, you know, um, with all the divisiveness that's out there and the kids are watching, they're always watching, but they're, it's cliche, but they are the future. You know, we're breaking that cycle. We're creating this conversation so that they can fully break the cycle. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I'm inspired today. Yeah, working on healing ourselves is only going to help the kids and it's going to go together. Hard part with parenting is you don't often see the effects till later. You mm-hmm. don't just say one thing and then magically they're better. Like you don't necessarily know and We've all had times in our lives we're not proud of. I know I definitely do. And we become young adults and start communicating with you. You're like, what's going to come out? Like, what are you going to ask me? What's going to, but just those, that communication and being vulnerable. Like, and that, I know that's not easy for guys, but I do see a big difference with that when you're able to be straightforward with your kids and say sorry and admit you're infallible. You are fallible. English major. Like like I used to think that vulnerability was a weakness and Mm -hmm. if I was weak, I was worthless. Right. But it was completely the opposite of that is that my vulnerability is my strength because it gives voice to those that don't have the courage to reach out yet. Right. And that's what a, a, a powerful man is. You know, we were talking about masculinity and I'm a warrior, you know, but I'm a warrior with a cause today, which is to stand up, to be the face of something, to be a catalyst of change, to fall down, mm-hmm. to, you know, to be stymied at different points, to phone or to talk to Rick yesterday about being angry and being angry that I'm angry. And, you know, the, everybody's watching, you know? So if we all just decided, you know, in our own time that we we're going to be that catalyst of change, man, we're going to do something special. Yeah, absolutely. I know I had an experience over the weekend with my oldest son and talking with you guys at this table today, it really, reminds me, puts me right back into that emotional moment with him where, you know, he's 21 now. He was telling me how something I did when he was 13, when I was intoxicated, came home drunk, fell down the stairs and thought it was hilarious. And he was so embarrassed by that because he had a friend sleeping over. 
And, you know, that's eight years ago and he's carrying that like it happened yesterday. And that was the first time that I had ever heard that story from him. And it really took me back, you know, started, Ricky reminded me of this, you know, like I grew up or I went through all of my active addiction with my children as young children. Right. And, and to see the impact of them eight, nine, 10 years later, see that impact is just such a huge eye opener for me. So I, I got the chance to sit down and be accountable to that behavior back then with him over the weekend and talk to him about, you know, yeah, that happened and this is why it happened. And this is who I was back then, but these are the changes I've made. And I've, I've stole your line where I said, I'll never be able to tip those scales back in favor of being a great dad again, but I'll spend the rest of my life trying to level that scale out. Right. Because I know what I did to them back then. And, and just based on my addiction and my behavior and how that impacted them in those, in those young years. So it was a huge moment for me and just another piece of making amends. Right. And in order to tip that scale back, it's not just with him or my other son, it's just society in general, right. Being an active member of society now and, and, making living amends by not doing the things I used to do is helping to tip those scales back. And yeah, when I told them I'll spend the rest of my life doing that, I truly mean that, right? Like I've never been more full in my life than I have been by helping other people for no other reason than to see them get a hand up because someone was there for me at the start. So, wow. Yeah. Big moments. Powerful. Big moments, man. (laughs) So how can we help you? Yeah, it's funny. I was just running through my head, like, where do we go next? And I think the idea of community is a big part of this. Like, how do we, I think maybe 15 years ago, you saw more of that people coming into schools, doing things and just the way society, like we're so much more concerned about you coming in, maybe saying the wrong thing or this group coming in with the wrong intentions. Like, and so that we've kind of pushed things away and maybe we need to be pulling back in together a bit as communities and not just presentations, but Mm -hmm. action things. And, like even we talked about the leadership classes and things like that. Often it's the females that are drawn to those classes. Like how do we find things that males want to get involved in? Like I know um, our football teams will take the kids out and do projects where they're cleaning up garbage on the highways or whatever. But how do we build that more outside of the teams? How do we get kids doing things, giving back? Because you're right, that action piece, I don't think there's anybody who could argue that there's not much better feeling than when you've done something for somebody solely just to help them. And not because you want to feel better about yourself, like you're doing it quietly to help somebody else. How do we experience, expose them to that experience? Like, Because that's addicting. When you get that feeling, you Ooh. just want to keep doing it. But a lot of them haven't had that chance. Yeah, and it is. And it's. It, I take it back to those universal truths, you know. Human beings are compensated directly proportional to the service they render others. Nobody taught me that in school. <laughs> Nobody. Yeah. You know, it was maybe something that I want to circle around back to is like, we're teaching students, you know, the basics, the math, the the English, the sciences, all this stuff. But maybe is there a big picture goal, like shifting to the more emotional side of things where there is more of an experience based learning system where they're experiencing how human beings are supposed to live so that it gives them the base to actually engage in the things that they're interested in and learn the way that they need to. Right. Um, <clears throat> Nothing on this planet lights me up like seeing hope in another human being's eyes or giving unconditionally of myself when they least expect Mm -hmm. it, right? Um, Again, that's how human beings are supposed to live. So how do we teach these young men and women in the schools that this is it so that they carry that forward, right? I think even shifting society's perception of teenagers because 
a lot of people are scared of them and they don't necessarily <laughs> want to come into school and partner with them and like I can say that they it's the most rewarding thing you'll ever do when you win a teenager oh. over like it is you'll feel great about yourself for a long time and the impact that you can have and I would say like 99% of teenagers are really really good people like I've been at this long enough too that I actually would say this generation of kids are better than we were when we were kids they're more empathetic they're more understanding they care about the world they just don't necessarily know how to put that in action at times and don't know where to to go with that they have the information they have the desire to be better in the world we just sort of channel into that right now because i think the timing is perfect with the pandemic with what we've been going through people aren't as worried about the things they might have been worried about five years ago they recognize now family community being well just our wellness as a whole i know i tease my daughter a lot she uses words anxiety and depression like we say hungry and tired yeah. like maybe more kids are identifying as anxious and depressed depressed because we've overused those words like maybe we focus more on just our wellness what do we need to do to be more well as individuals as a community as a family how do we help each other with that instead of that individual pursuit of, well, I woke up today and I'm depressed, so I got to stay home and stay in bed. Well, yeah, you're having a bad day. What can you do to get out of that? And who do you need to help you to get out of that? I just want to share something with you. Um, in the last, well, it was about a month ago now, I had a woman reach out to me um, through OCJ that was in my life intermittently 20 years ago, but she's a teacher. She reached out to me. She's been struggling with uh, substance abuse and suicidal thoughts over the course of, well, for a while, but it, it kind of has come to a head here in the pandemic. And uh, she shared this with me two days ago. I asked her, you know, I, I try to keep in touch with her and how you doing and what's, what's going on. And she said, uh, beyond the crazy, all the crazy logistics of teaching during COVID, what has horrified me is the toll it is taking on our kids. We've had seven grade uh, seven kids, grade seven through nine, attempt suicide, and five kids, grade four through six, exp express uh, suicidal ideation. It's truly breaking me apart. And that's that's what's she's going home and trying to self medicate, and 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 we really need to support the support. I think, and that's kind of when we were what we were talking about, right? Um, I don't I'm know. giving you a slow golf clap here right now, but <laughs> that is huge. Like you feel the weight of your kids. Well, teachers, those kids are their kids, and when they get the phone call that Sally is at the hospital and going to be there for a week, and then she's going to be back on Monday, like that is a lot. Like you don't know how to help necessarily, and yeah, it's very overwhelming. And that kind of brings me back to you know when we first started talking about how do we support the school district, and you know the the brief fleeting moment of let's go talk to the kids was like is that really the best use of our resources though? Like, cause that's an in and out. And it, when you said, when you guys were that age, it w wouldn't have been an impact on absolutely. you. It didn't. Right. And, and I think that's, it's empowering leaders when they're struggling, you know, you know, when we spoke to the medicine at police service, you know, we're not coming in there to tell anybody how they're doing, whatever they're doing <laughs> is good or bad. It's just, we're here to tell you that we're here for you. Right. And that's what, you know, all these different organizations, how do we get in front of them to say, we're here to support you, whatever that looks like for you. We don't know what that looks like, but we'll figure it out with you. Cause again, we don't want to rescue you, but we want to, we want to be there along the process and not give up. Right. Because the kids deserve it. The teachers deserve it. Well, I think that's one part of, of what we're trying to do is build that community. Cause every door that opens, every organization that lets us speak to them, 
you might not hit everybody, right? I mean, half the people, well, I don't know what the statistic would be, but there's going to be a group that are like, oh yeah, another presenter, whatever, and, and kind of zone out, right? But I mean, you know, it brings me back to the uh, police service. Like when we, every time we did that and we tried to leave, we would get stopped in the hallway by a half a dozen of them and, and talk, right? And that built real relationships. So if we can do that with the police department, with the school board, all of a sudden, like, you know, when, when we go in and go, what can we help? Well, how can we help support you? It's not just us now. We've got 20 more people that we brought from the last time we talked yeah. at an agency coming with us, right? So, like, we're slowly, organically building this, I don't know what the best analogy is, wave, army, whatever, right? But, like, developing a systematic change within the community. And even even if it is two people at a time in a speaking engagement of 200, well, it's progress, right? And and who knows, you know, it's that throwing a rock in a pond, right? Who knows what that ripple will be in, which I think can't be more clearly represented than it is in a school, right? You have no idea how far that ripple effect will be that you have on that kid that, that day. Building that empathy and understanding is, is crucial. Like lots of teachers, as well as I'm sure police officers, have led maybe a pretty average life. And like your one podcast went about the, the normal um, they need to understand because like, sometimes it's just hard to picture why is a student acting this way? It just doesn't make sense because everything from the outside seems like it should be fine. But helping people hear from real people what's going on and what happened with them, it's got to help because just reading stories and books isn't going to do it. They need to hear from real people and put faces to those names too. Yeah, we had some coffee with some friends here a bit back. And their teenage son was sitting in the other room playing on his phone. And we were, we were talking about our collective journey and talking just about, you know, addiction and alcoholism. And he popped his head around the corner and, you know, started asking some really poignant questions that he wanted to know what it was like to do cocaine. He wanted to know what it was like. And I was able to talk to him in a way that maybe his parents or a teacher weren't able to talk to him. And, and after we were done, he said, thank you you talk to me like I was your friend, you know, and that really touched home because that's who I am today. You know, I don't have any shame or blame or guilt on anything I've went through and I can relate to people where they're at. And I will answer those questions in a completely honest manner, you know, not because I read it out of a book. It's because I experienced those things. Um, and I think that's the power of shared experience. That's what this is. That's what, you know, building an army of, of people that are willing to share their story. Cause Rick says it all the time. Your story is a chapter in someone else's survival guide. Right. And that's everybody, whether they've gone through addictions or alcoholism or, you know, loss or whatever, everybody has a story. When you think of the messages they're being inundated with every day with their phones of like glamorizing that lifestyle and how wonderful it all is. And then just, you know, instantly they decide they want a better life and click, they move on to better life. Well, that's not how reality works for most people. Like they need to hear the reality of things, not just have what's coming in on their phones on a daily basis. Well, and, it, and that it does take work, right? We live in such a instant gratification world now that, you know, they, that's just it. If you're get if, if the kids are getting a bad message or a bad image that, you know, boom, it's gone. Right. And they can just cycle through their phone whether it's a dating app, whether it's whatever, right? You, like you just cycle through and there's not really a lot of effort that needs to go into that. And 
And life tends to take a little more effort than social media might portray, right? A lot of those images will still stick in the brain. Oh, yeah, for and sure. you need to counteract it with the actions and the helping with people. Because if that's all you're taking in, if you're only taking in that all day, you're going to start feeling pretty crappy about yourself and about the world. You well, need to be experiencing the positive, too. And it's the pursuit of something fake. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, that's when I, I talk to my kids all the time, having dinner and stuff. And they're like, they throw out statistics or like this happened. I'm like, where'd you get that? Internet. Like, yeah, that's not true, buddy. <laughs> like, I got to teach you to be a little better at crit, uh, critical thinking, right? And uh, it just, there's such a constant barrage of information that is coming at them. Like, um, it's it's just amazing to me what the, what the process of a teenager these days, the things that they have to deal with, you know, at our demographic, our age, right? We, we didn't get, we didn't get that influx of, of information coming at us that like, it's, it's gotta be overwhelming and it's gotta take its toll. And we got to be naive to think that news was all true and things are told that parents told us were accurate, (laughs) but you know, your mom now tells you one thing, your dad tells you something different, grandma, you don't know what to believe. And so then they do, they turn to their peers and the peers are not always the most skilled people to be telling you what's real and what's the best for you. And they're very drawn to those connections and moving away from parents a lot of times. But it's hard for them. It's so challenging for them now compared to what we went through. Absolutely. And and I know from working with a few young adults that, you know, got into the drug scene at the start, it was because, you know, they told me it was because they didn't have those influences at home or wherever, right? Those good supports and and taught them the proper coping mechanisms and all that stuff. Right. And they did run into a few peers that were smoking marijuana or whatever it was at the time, marijuana in this instance. But they said after that first time, you know, their problems disappeared and that was their new coping mechanism. And and that's how fast, you know, not full blown addiction, but that's how fast someone gets down that wrong path at the start is just by not having the right coping mechanisms and the right environmental skills and stuff like that to deal with their problems at that young age. And like you said, Rick, I touched on it earlier being 18 today is way different than being 18 when we were that age or 17 or 16. And yeah, it's a tough time to be, to be a young adult in this world for sure. Well, and it was so much safer to experiment too. Like <laughs> when you, you know, like I, I look back in at the drugs that I experimented with. And I mean, there wasn't too much on the market that day back then that was going to kill me yeah. immediately. One and done. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's like, that's the message that I try to, talk to my kids about openly and honestly is, Absolutely. is, is drug use and, and try to, you know, we, we say it several times a day. Now drugs and alcohol were not my problem. They were my solution. Right. And I've explained to my kids that like, that was a luxury that I could afford. You guys can't afford that because I'm seeing kids mm-hmm. and well, not even just kids, men, women, people dying from a bad batch for sure from, the wrong thing, the wrong, like, it's just so dangerous out there now. And the teenage brain is invincible. Like oh, they, they oh, really yeah. feel that it won't be them and it won't mm-hmm. happen to them. Yeah. Tell my 40 year old body that I still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so true. And the, and the drug supply right now, especially in the pandemic, right? Just coming from the professional world, it's, it is toxic right across the whole country. It is getting cut with fentanyl. It doesn't matter. I know people who have overdosed smoking marijuana because it's laced with fentanyl and it's not from a dispensary or, you know, crystal meth or stimulant users that are not used to any kind of opiates and it's cut with fentanyl and nobody's got a naloxone kit around and 
you tip over and that's the end of it. Well, that's one of the message, you know, and I don't know if it's right or wrong and it might be completely wrong, but I've had real chats with my, with my kids saying, you know, I get it. You're a teenager. You're going to experiment. You're going to do some things. I said, just make sure you're getting it from a dispensary. Like that's a luxury of legalized pot right now. Right. Is it at least if you're getting it from there, you should survive the night. Yeah. Like, you know, it, it, and maybe I'm completely wrong by delivering that message, but I don't want to be so ignorant as to think that they're not going to do it either. Right. I mean, they're still teenagers. So it's, and we say the same with alcohol, like, mm-hmm. let us give it to you. I don't want some boy buying for you and who knows what's in it. For sure, right? And but it's definitely a bit of an Alberta culture, I think. Like my, totally my brother's down in Minneapolis and he partied hard in high school, but like his kids, like, they can't drink there till 21. So it's not even an issue. They just, yeah. they just don't. And it is here. Like, if you're not drinking by 16, you're kind of... For sure. Ostracized. Yeah. yeah, what's wrong with you? I'm 43 and I still have people in my life that can't fathom that I don't drink anymore, you know, or I'll meet a new person in my career and they'll be like, you know, I don't trust people that don't drink. And it's like, go away. So it is, it's a, it's a cultural thing that I don't see those people as bad people. I just see them as ignorant or hurting or they've had something going on. So I don't judge them. And even that's a cultural shift too. Like, what do you do here? You want to go for a drink? Like it's so much part of our, our culture here. Maybe again, pandemic might switch that. We've had uh, people are doing puzzles and going for walks and finding different things to do now. Well, that's a crazy thing too. Like I'm sitting here watching as, as the restrictions eased off yesterday. Right. And, and everybody's, everybody's attention through this, a lot of people's attention through the, the COVID stuff. And especially this last round of restrictions is, you know, the mental health impact. And what is everybody pumped to do? Go to the bar. And I'm like, holy cow. Like, right. So you're in a elevated state of depression, anxiety, whatever, you know, you deteriorated mental health. And the one thing that you're really pumped about right now is getting to the bar. Right. It's like, holy shit. Where they just pour depressant out of a bottle. <laughs> And maybe they're not looking for the actual alcohol. They're looking for the connection. Hopefully, but we right? need other places then for that. Like, exactly. We just don't have a lot here yeah. to do that doesn't involve going for a drink. Well, that's, and I guess that's my point, right? It, 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 hopefully it isn't so much about the booze because we can get the booze wherever you're at. But it's it, our, our society, our social interactions, you know, and I can look back on my past, right? And all of everything revolved around, let's go for a drink. Yeah. You know, you're having a good day. Let's go for a drink. You're having a bad day. Let's go for a drink. For sure. Whatever it was, right? So maybe, you know, what, maybe that's the challenge here. What are, what are the other options, right? Well, and I think that's where we've kind of talked about it before, right? With us at OCJ collaborating with different agencies and different venues in the city, you know, that's something that we can start to hopefully shift some of that perspective in society is, you know, I've been talking a few days or a few times now with people from gyms in town and stuff like that. And maybe collaborating with those kind of venues instead of places that revolve around alcohol or have alcohol involved is, you know, or or we do something with one of those fitness facilities or we do something with like we've talked around here about, you know, something to do to do with music, some sort of dry event or something. Right. It doesn't always have to revolve around alcohol, although it seems like it does in, in this culture and especially in this demographic here in this part of the world. But. I'm on the board at the Y, and we're planning with a couple of community groups a mini sticks tournament yeah. in the spring, assuming that COVID allows. But just stuff like that, where people can come out and have fun together, like without the alcohol portion of it. For sure, and we've talked about. Well, maybe we haven't, but I'll talk about it now anyway. But you know, we talk about 
the culture here and and it, you mix in some sports as well like growing up being a hockey player you as well damon like that's another culture where alcohol is just fuels everything right it seems like and maybe that's an avenue to have like some sort of dry hockey tournament or something right we i think we have to promote more things that don't involve alcohol because that'll help normalize that culture as well right not everything you know you get on social media and it's just normalized that single mo- or moms that stay at home drink wine you see so many memes about that right when did that become normal yeah mom's wine glass right? yeah right? Sunny juice <laughs> yeah i mean starting to transform that narrative back to where you know alcohol isn't a big piece in society it's always going to be there but i think it all starts with us right what are we going to do about it and that's where your catchphrase at the very start of this journey about getting off the bench and get in the game right it it comes into play in so many different areas of society i think not just addiction it's like what are we going to do how can one person do something well get off the bench and we'll find out if you could think of something that draws teens in that doesn't involve substances at all, like oh. I know it's always been a challenge. I used to work at the Roller Dome back in the day when it was here. And <laughs> from what I understand, there was a whole lot of drug influence down there. Nobody ever approached, approached me. I was too much of a loser. But <laughs> <laughs> it seems like you build something and then that element often comes. But maybe one-off things where you have events, but kids want to be together, especially now, totally. like as COVID's lightening up. If there's events where teenagers can come be together and not have the parental influence quite as heavy on, over their shoulder, I think that would be a, a positive action that we could be involved in as well. Yeah, everybody's craving that human connection, that, yeah, that, yeah. that personal together, you know, not on your phone, not on Zoom, not on FaceTime, connection, right? And that's, that's where I'm encouraged. Like when you, were, when you guys were talking about the, the bullying thing prior to us coming on air and how the students have taken ownership of anti-bullying and if they see somebody being bullied like that's where the power is going to really take off is when they become responsible for their mental health and their well-being and they you know we give them that space and we hold them you know we see them bigger than maybe they see themselves and all of a sudden they're invested in it and they take ownership of it and then then it becomes normal right that's that's developing leaders and Maybe that's not maybe that's what we're doing Mm -hmm. um, by having these conversations and inviting people along for the ride. Right. Yeah. 100%. I mean, the more conversations we start, the more opinions, the more engaged people we can put in a room. Well, not necessarily a room because we can't do that, (laughs) but you know, just the more collaboration that we can have to try to develop more of a holistic approach. Like that's the other thing, you know, I've been on, you know, a, been involved with a couple different agencies and nonprofits and on board positions. And a lot of people are really siloed and a lot of agencies are really siloed. And typically that is based around defensive funding. Right. And, mm-hmm. and we don't want to collaborate too much because then we might not be relevant and then we might not get our funding. And it's like, okay, you know, and Selena Simmons was in here, um, what, two weeks ago from the food bank and very much a like money in the middle approach, right? Like let's let's all get all the funding we can, put it in the middle and collaborate on what the holistic approach to the solution is. And, you know, from her position, it's you know, food scarcity and food security is kind of the building block of everything, right? And uh, which I don't by any means disagree with, but um, the more agencies, the more organizations that we can collaborate with and, and, and really take a community approach to a solution is where the success is going to lie. Cause if I sit in my bedroom at night and put on my thinking cap, yeah, I might come up with one decent idea over the course of my lifetime. But when you put everybody in that same room and 
talk it out and spitball ideas. And I mean, that's been the approach to OCJ from the beginning, right? Is I got an idea and then we all play devil's advocate and it turns in morphs into something that like none of us had on our radar. And I think that's the beauty of, of the collaboration piece. And hopefully, you know, with SD 76 and, and all of the different organizations, the more, the more we're willing to have the uncomfortable talks, the closer we'll get to a solution. Wow. Any final thoughts? Anybody? No, this has been powerful. You know, I think with a hundred percent intention, the mechanism will show up, you know, and, and I think with everybody that's involved with our collective journey, um, it always seems to be right. The right people that are action takers mm. seem to come into our sphere of influence or us into theirs. And then we, we collab and then magic happens. The intention is to help. The intention is to make a difference. When we talked, whatever, six months ago about doing something in my wildest dreams, would we be sitting here today doing this? No, you know, like <laughs> this wasn't even on my consciousness, but getting the message out and empowering people just to, to, to finally get up off the bench and for them to take a stand for what their purpose is and then allow us to empower you. That's, you know, I think that's where we're going. And, and it starts with us adults and the kids are watching, you know, and they're going to see what we're doing and they're going to, you know, want to be a part of, and it'll be on their time. But if we keep staying this course, you know, they, they'll pivot with us. Right. And that's a pretty cool thing to, to be a part of right now. Yeah, it's a bit overused phrase, but the the be the change you want to see. I mm-hmm. I really believe in that model. You can't just preach at the kids and tell them to do something if you're not willing to step up and and do it. I can. I'm a very busy lady, and I'm always being told, "Well, you got to learn how to say no." And I'm like, "It's not a matter of saying no. I'm the one with my hand up first because oh, that's cool. I want to be involved in that." And like, how do we how do we make that contagious too? Again, because mm-hmm. it's very easy to sit back and watch and just wait for something to happen. How do we build this momentum and get more people wanting to make a difference? I think you guys are doing it. Well, I think that's been one of the things that we talked about from the beginning is our willingness to always say yes. Right. And whoever, you know, I guess this is kind of a open invitation to any agencies, any organizations out there. Anytime you want to have a conversation, reach out. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not just, it's not just individuals that we're looking to talk to. It's, it's organizations, it's institutions, Let's have a conversation, right? And let's, you know, not limit that to even just us. Like if we can build a, a real community network of people that are change driven and, and motivated and action takers, right? It's, you know, I've seen a lot of organizations stall out on the theory side of things, right? Mm-hmm. Just sitting around getting paralyzed with a good idea and not knowing how to implement it. So, yeah, let's, uh, I'm really excited for the for the volume two of this talk that we have in a year about what, you know, what have we done? You know, we, what action have we taken? What, so thank you very much for your time today. We well, know, you, we guys. know, we know you're a busy lady and we appreciate you. <laughs> that doesn't say no. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we appreciate you carving out some time to be with us and, and, uh, look forward to talking to you more and collaborating with you and your, with your peers as well. Thank you guys again. Awesome. And with that, I guess we'll shut her down from the Plugged In Media Network. Uh, Good day. From Darkness to Life is an Our Collective Journey podcast. These are the true stories of struggles and triumphs against addiction and mental health challenges. 
If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Rick, Ryan, and Damien are here for you. Contact Our Collective Journey on Facebook at Our Collective Journey or on the web at ourcollectivejourney.ca. Hosted by Poncho Parker. Produced by Rob Pate. Engineered, edited, and directed by Dave Cruikshank. From Darkness to Life is a plugged-in media network exclusive. Check out this and our other great podcasts at pymedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening.